You know, we've been in the Dominican Republic for a while. We started off in Nagua, and then later on, we were in Nagua for 10 to 12 years, and then we went to San Francisco de Macorís, another city that's more central, larger, with a greater need. And uh, we really appreciate the prayers that we know you all have always um, been offering up for us. And uh, the Lord's been hearing and He's been answering. Right now the congregation has about oh, 15 baptized members, and they're almost always visitors. There are almost always a few who don't know the Lord, but who regularly show up. Uh, so pray for that meeting. And also the cell groups that we mentioned here are going pretty well also. A number of people that don't attend the services do go to the cell groups. They're evangelistic in nature, and they're going through the basic steps of what it is to be a Christian or to become a Christian. And we see the Lord really working there in two cell groups that are going on every week, along with the Bible classes that um, Jed Harris, who's right here, is uh, doing a wonderful job with. So uh, thank you so much for those prayers. I want to invite you this morning to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 13. In case you didn't hear clearly in the presentation there, our two daughters are Amy and Ashley. And uh, thank you so much for your prayers for them also. The Lord's working in their lives as well. Romans chapter 13. And since this will probably be the last message you hear, the last Sunday morning message you hear this year, we'd like to make it a, uh, an end of the year exhortation. So Romans chapter 13, the last four verses read like this. Verse 12, The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. Amen. And uh, Father, we thank you again this morning for the, the opportunity to share your word. The chance to be with the brethren, with those who know and love your son Jesus Christ, and who desire to serve you. We just want to have pure lives before you. And want to be useful tools in your hands to do what you want to do. You have a program for the world. You have a program for this earth. You have a program for your people. And we know that it's your desire that everybody be saved. You don't want anybody to be lost and to perish. You want all men to come to you, to come to repentance, and to come to know Jesus Christ, your Son, who's the only hope of eternal life. But we know that most people reject you and you've proclaimed in your word the great multitudes that are going to wind up in destruction in the end of the age but we want to do our part Lord to bring as many in as we can and we want to be pure and holy and we want you to help us Lord to live in that way that glorifies you we pray that you'd speak to us from your word this morning and motivate us in a time when there's so much that goes against being a Christian. So much that goes against living a godly life and sharing your word in this world. So strengthen us in the inner man. Guide us, lead us, bless our understanding of your word and cause it to reach its goal, to reach the the mark in our hearts and to do what you want it to do in us, to change us, to make us more like Christ. Bless this congregation. We want to ask it in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. 
Again, it's really a joy to see all of you. Uh, I understand there are a lot of, that are visiting from other places. Uh, even so, I wouldn't know very well which ones are visiting and which ones are from here. There are a few that I, there are quite a few that I recognize, but I'm sorry I don't recognize all of you to know. But you're all precious to us, and uh, we love you, and pray that God will do his work in all of your lives. This portion begins, and that knowing the time in verse 11 and that well what is that if you just look back a little bit to find out what that is that he's talking about in verse 8 he says oh no man anything but to love one another for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law love one another in verse 10 he says love works no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. You see that phrase repeated twice in verse 8 and in verse 10, that love fulfills the law. And when he says, and that, in verse 12, in verse 11, I mean, and that, the theme here is that we're to love one another because love fulfills the law. So what is that? the fact that we're to love one another. When we think about that, God says, I want you all to love each other. So through Paul, God admonishes us to love one another. And he says, do that, love one another, knowing the time. So here's where we are. God says, we should all be loving each other. Thinking about the time that we're living in. Realize the time that you're living in and love each other. Knowing the time that now it is high time to wake out of sleep. I'm sure it's happened to you as it's happened to me where sometimes you're, you're asleep and you, you know you're asleep. It's not often. Usually when, you, when you're asleep, you're just having a good old time. You're dreaming along. <laughs> and you wake up and say, oh, wow, that was a dream. I had no idea that was a dream. But occasionally, it seems like it's happened to everybody at some point, where you're dreaming, and somehow you think, while you're dreaming, I think I'm dreaming. And you feel like you're dreaming. And then you say, well, if I'm dreaming, I should be able to wake up. And you say, well... Let me see if I'm really dreaming. And you might pinch yourself or whatever. And it's so hard to really discern that you're dreaming. But you say, I feel like I might be dreaming. Let me just try to wake up. And you try to wake up and it seems like you just keep on sleeping because there's something strange about the dream state of a person that you're just so confused and you're trying to wake up and you don't, just don't know how to wake up. Well, it might not have happened to everybody, but at some point um, in that dream state, if you do realize that you're dreaming and you try to wake up and you find it difficult to wake up, you might have a little bit of an idea of the sense of the verse we're talking about. You're sleeping and Paul says, you need to wake up. You're sleeping, you don't realize it, but you need to wake up. Now, if you're in the situation where you're sleeping and you feel like, I want to wake up, but I can't seem to wake up, the worst consequence of being in bed and wanting to wake up and not being able to wake up, maybe the worst consequence is that you're going to be late for work, right? <laughs> that's the worst that's going to happen. You, you, you should have woken up, but, but you didn't. Or you woke, or you, you heard the alarm and you thought you woke up. You know, you're just in your dream, you're turning it off and, <laughs> and you're putting on your clothes in your dream. But then you're, oh, I was sleeping the whole time. <laughs> You know, what's the worst that's going to happen? Well, you're going to be late to wherever you needed to be. That's the worst situation. But what the scripture deals with here is much more uh, consequential than just being late for work. This is much more urgent. Paul says, you have got to wake up. You must wake up. There are consequences to not waking up here. You have to wake up. Now is the time for you to wake out of sleep. Now it is high time, the scripture says, to awake out of sleep. Why? 
Why should you wake up? He says that the, in the middle of verse 11 there, For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. It was far away, but now it's close. What's close? Our salvation is nearer. Well, you were saved when you believed in Jesus Christ. When you repented of your sin, you recognized that there was nobody who could save you except Jesus Christ. You realized that through God's word, through the preached word of God, you came to the understanding that you needed to give your life to Christ. That you needed him to save you. Because you're not good enough to save yourself. Because nobody's saved by works. We're saved by him. At some point, we believed in him and we were saved. This is something that happened in the past. You already have been saved. Born again. Yet, there's another aspect of salvation that Paul speaks of here that's future. Even though we are saved, even though we have been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, there's no more condemnation to those who are in Christ. Yet, he speaks of a future salvation. The, 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 the salvation when Jesus Christ comes and we're saved from the actual presence of sin. I mean, right now we're saved from the power of sin and the penalty of sin, but the salvation that's coming is from the very presence of it. There won't even be any sin that will ever enter our mind when Jesus Christ comes. He's talking about this time when, when everything is fulfilled, and the Lord comes, and we're carried into His presence, into His glory, and we're completely saved inside and out. Because right now you could say we're saved on the inside, but the outside is still the same old outside it's always been. And we're struggling. The struggle of a Christian is to get the outside to look like the inside. But we're saved on the inside and we're just uh, struggling and striving and reading God's word and trusting in him. And the Holy Spirit's working in us to bring us into conformity to the image of Christ. But we're not there yet. But when he comes back, we'll be there. I mean, that will be the, the full salvation when he comes. He says, now our salvation, that moment when we're completely like him in every way that no one can look at us and see anything other than Christ, when that day comes, that's our salvation. And he says it's nearer now than when we believed. It's closer now than when we believed. You can ask, um, you know, how long ago did you believe? When was it? How long ago did you, was it that you gave your life to Christ? Uh, one thing that's definitely, that's definitely clear, your salvation is nearer now than when you believed. It was five years ago? Two years ago? Well, back then, if it was two years ago, you had to wait at least two years for your salvation when Jesus comes back. You had to wait at least two years. Who knows how much longer? But now you've got two years less to wait. Okay, Maybe it was 10 years ago, or 15 or 20. Imagine those who were saved 30 or 40 years ago. You've got 40 years less to wait for Jesus Christ to appear and to take you into his glory. That much is, is for sure definite. There's no, you don't have to go back and wait that time over again. That is definitely clear. Now, there are a lot of people today that are saying, if you just turn on YouTube and, and start... Um, getting distracted by all the stuff that goes on in YouTube, there's so many out there now that are just saying, you know, this is it. If you calculate this date, and you calculate these numbers, and you look at this verse and that verse, it, it has to be within the next two months. The rapture's going to come in two months. Now, they started saying this about, what, uh, ten years ago? And it's got to be, it's, it's, if it's not this month, it's going to be next month. And uh, I guarantee you, if you went on there today, they'd say, it's before the new year. It's going to happen before the new year. <laughs> and others say, no, it's going to be right at the beginning of this next year. It's going to be before February. And people are constantly saying, they're trying to put a date on when he's going to come back. <laughs> when our Lord's going to appear and we're going to go into glory or when the great rapture is going to happen. And maybe the first time you see it, you get excited. <laughs> but after a while, it gets kind of disheartening. When you, when it's now, and then it's next day, and then it's later on. The Bible says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. And that just makes me sick. 
I'm tired of it. I'm tired of hearing all this. It's going to be in next month or next week. And it hasn't come yet. That's why people mock Christianity a lot, because they think that that really is Christianity. And that's just people that are deceived, the blind leading the blind. Well, there are a lot of people saying that it's going to be in such and such a time, but we know that we don't know when it's going to be. And Jesus said very clearly, you don't know the day or the hour, so don't try to place a time on it. Simply wait and be faithful. But the point is, whether it's soon or whether it's way down the road, Paul says you need to wake up. Think about this. When Paul said that now is the time that you need to wake up, that was 2,000 years ago. And he said, it's time to wake up. Okay, In a sense, you, you can think of it as as long as your life is, well, that's the time span that you have to work with. So Paul, even though he's saying it's urgent for you to get things right, it really was urgent for those who were going to die in those days, right? You know, even though he didn't come in those days, but their time is up. They don't have any more opportunities to get ready. <laughs> they had to do it back then. Okay, so in the same sense, you only have a certain amount of time to work with. Whether it happens to be that Jesus will return in our days or not, you only have the span of your life and you don't know how long you're going to live. Paul says it's urgent for you to wake up. Another point or another idea of why it would be urgent for you to wake up, why we could say this is the time for you to wake up and be ready for the Lord, is simply the idea that if you look at it, you can see the Bible is proving itself to be true. There are people that uh, deny God's word. There are people that argue against God's word. It's popular these days to be um, to stand up against God. It's popular to, for artists, uh, popular, famous people, to stand up there and say that there is no God. And um, I've searched and I've studied the matter and have discovered that there is no God. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> You know, you live in this little in this little tiny corner of the universe, of God's immense universe, and you've searched all around this little tiny dot here, and you haven't found God in there. So there is no God. I can proclaim to you with great assurance, there is no God. That's the foolishness of man. The fool says in his heart that there is no God. But that's what people say, that there's no God. It's popular today. To say that there's no God. But the evidence is all around us. There's so much evidence, but just a few moments I want to take to look at some things that are very clear, that the Bible makes very clear, that, that give evidence that it's true, that God is real, and that point to the, the idea that we really are approaching the end of time. Just a few things that um, that show this. Basic. You start off with the basic. The main push of the Bible is that there is one God, and He's the only one who can save, and that all of us are going to have to give account to Him. The basic teaching in the Bible is that God is holy, and man is wicked. Man is sinful. If you want to disprove the Bible, if you want to just, let's just prove that the Bible's wrong. One of the simplest ways to prove that the Bible is wrong, if it were wrong, <laughs> would be to simply find one person who's not bad. Just find one person who's not bad, and you've disproved the Bible. <laughs> you know, can you find one person in the whole earth, time past, or, in, or living today, who, who never sins? Is there one here? Is anybody here who's never sinned, never done anything wrong? Anybody who in honesty can say, I've never sinned. I always do what's right. Well, that would disprove the Bible. That's all you have to do. Just one person who doesn't sin. 
one person who has spent one day without sinning. Just one day that you didn't do anything wrong. I did it all right today and I wasn't dead. <laughs> I wasn't in a coma. <laughs> I did everything perfectly today. Never did anything wrong. Didn't say a bad word. Didn't think a bad thought. Didn't disobey one command. I was perfect. That would disprove the Bible. But it's never happened. There's never been one soul in all of eternity or in all of the existence of man on this planet except for the God-man himself who ever lived a perfect life. <laughs> that, In general, that that's proof, that's evidence that the Bible's true. Why does everybody have to be sinful? Why is that? Why is that all of us have to sin? There's clear teaching in the Bible that explains that. But that's just in general, that uh, there's nobody who doesn't sin. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. If you listen to the music, I was talking to um, Brother Malcolm the other day, and we were talking about, um, we were sitting in, I don't know, one of those, like Burger King or something, and the radio was playing, <laughs> and they were playing all these old songs that we remembered from our youth. <laughs> And I don't remember which song, one of the songs that we talked about was one that says, I can't get no satisfaction. <laughs> you know, just things that the Bible, if you read the Bible, the Bible already said that. But you had to go through all this failure in your life and struggling and defeat to discover what the Bible said so long ago. But there are other songs that, even though they're not trying to justify the Bible, actually do bring out what the Bible teaches. Uh, Billy Joel had one that said, um, honesty is such a lonely word. Everyone is so untrue. Is that an exaggeration? It's not an exaggeration. It's the truth. He's not trying to justify the Bible, but if you just get people to admit it, the Bible proves itself to be true, and everybody knows it. Everybody knows it, that we're all sinners. There's none righteous, no, not one. How about another one? The fact that not only are we sinful, but that sin just keeps on abounding. It keeps on growing and growing and growing. The world is not getting better. You might have things that look better. They might have a lot of technology, a lot of new construction and architectural ideas that are amazing. Robotics. Amazing things that people can do. Medical technology, so you can heal diseases that weren't healable before. But what about the heart of man? How are we treating each other? When you look around the world, is there... Is there peace because people are loving each other more now and we're getting kinder, sweeter people? No. Iniquity abounds. It keeps on growing. The Bible already said that. Jesus said in, in Matthew 24 that iniquity would abound and because iniquity abounded, the love of many would grow cold. Well, if you want to disprove the Bible, all you have to do is cause things to get better and better and better. Let there be paradise on earth without Christ. And you've disproved the Bible. But you'll never get it. Things always get worse and worse and worse because man always shuts God out and tells him, I don't want you in my life. And for that reason, things get worse and worse and worse. Iniquity abounds. Just let the world get better and you've disproved the Bible. But it doesn't get better. It gets worse. How about... Um, the name of Jesus. What, what is it about the name of Jesus that people hate so much? You ever watch, um, I forget, there's, I forget the name, it's, everyone knows what it is, when, when you have Simon on there and they judge the people, what's that called? I forget. Um, I saw someone get up there and sing a, a song about the Lord. I don't remember what the song was, 
don't remember who it was, but sang a song that glorified Christ. And it was beautiful. And then uh, I think what Simon said was, can you sing anything else? Can you sing something that's not about God? There's this hatred for God and specifically for the name of Jesus Christ. The, the world cannot applaud Jesus Christ. In fact, um, there was a, well, another similar incident like that with, um, with my daughter in a, in a gymnastics meet when someone stood up and sang a song that glorified God. Everything else got a great applause. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this one was, well, interesting. <laughs> because no matter how good it is, if it glorifies God, it's bad. We don't want to hear it. We don't want to hear about God. And specifically, the name of Jesus Christ. Tell me anything. Talk, talk to me about love. You ever get these um, little Facebook and whatever in the, in the media that you receive, whatever in the uh, means of communication that you receive, that are just nice little thoughts, nice little prayers, have a beautiful, wonderful day with butterflies and birds and rivers and beaches and so on, okay? And some of you, I know, like to send them to each other. But most of them don't mention Jesus Christ. Most of them don't mention Jesus Christ. And the reason is because if you send one that says, that mentions Jesus Christ, it's offensive. Human nature rebels against God and specifically against the name of Jesus Christ. So if you want to disprove the Bible, since the Bible says that there's salvation in no other except in the name of Jesus Christ, there's only one name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved, and that is the name of Jesus Christ. And the world tends to not want to hear about Jesus Christ. If you want to disprove the Bible... Just get the whole world to start loving Jesus. <laughs> the whole world starts saying, yeah, Jesus is a wonderful name. We love him. He can be welcome in our shows and in our gatherings. We're always going to welcome Jesus. Okay, why doesn't that happen? <laughs> That's never going to happen because the Bible is true. And the Bible is proclaimed from the beginning that man in his nature is against God and doesn't want to hear the name of Jesus Christ, the only name that can save you. Here's another one that's a little deeper, or a little more apparent, maybe. Israel. You know, we look at Israel and what's happening over there. The, the psalmist said in Psalm 83, verse 3, they have taken crafty counsel against thy people, and consulted against thy hidden ones. They have said, Come, and let us cut them off from being a nation. That's Psalm 83, verse 3 and 4. That the name of Israel may be no more in remembrance. For they have consulted together with one consent, their confederate against thee. They hate God, and they hate anyone who represents him, which to them would be Israel or the church. So they hate us. They hate the name of Jesus Christ. They hate Israel. Well, if you want to prove the Bible wrong, since the Bible says that everybody wants to wipe out Israel, prove the Bible wrong, cause everybody to love Israel. When the day comes that everyone says, Israel is wonderful, before Jesus Christ comes back and restores everything, if people would just, of their own initiative, begin to love Israel, love the Jewish people, well, you would disprove the Bible, but it won't happen. It will not happen. But you know what's paradoxical? The fact that everyone hates Israel. They're all against Israel and want to destroy Israel and wipe Israel off the map. And yet, they can't do it. They've tried to do it. They've tried to wipe Israel off the map because they hate Israel and they can't do it. Let's just exterminate Israel because we don't want to know anything about them. We hate them. That's what the world says. That's their attitude. But when they've tried to exterminate Israel, they haven't been able to do it. You know how many people groups have been exterminated from the planet? <laughs> it's not a common research item, but there have been thousands, 
thousands of people groups that have been completely obliterated, exterminated from the planet. Especially in Brazil. Thousands just in Brazil. And in Russia, the, the area of Russia, a lot of people groups have been wiped out through the ages and all over the world. And that's without singling them out to exterminate them. Think about it. Israel has been the, the blank, the, the, the focal point of the hatred of the whole world, and they've made deliberate efforts to wipe them out and have not been able to. You want to disprove the Bible, wipe out Israel. You can't do it. Because God has his finger on Israel. And he's doing a great work there. We don't understand it. But God's made it very clear. Uh, Egypt tried, Assyria tried, Babylon tried. They were scattered throughout the world. Hitler and the, and the um, Germans tried. And they couldn't do it in the Holocaust. Zechariah 10.8 says, I will hiss for them and gather them, for I have redeemed them. In verse 9 it says, And I will sow them among the people, and they shall remember me in far countries. And this happened. This is happening. Verse 10, I will bring them again also out of the land of Egypt, and gather them out of Assyria. And later on it says, Gilead and Lebanon and uh, and place shall not be found for them. There'll be so many of them coming back that they're going to be squeezed into that little spot. And this is what we see actually fulfilling itself today. The Bible is fulfilling itself, proving itself to be true. The whole world in, in hatred and animosity against Israel, determining to wipe them out, and they can't be wiped out because it proves that the Bible is true. It proves that God is who he says. You want to disprove the Bible? Just let there be less earthquakes. Why are there more earthquakes today than there were before? You see different statistics on this. I realize if you really look it up and try to be honest and objective about it, are there more earthquakes today than there were before? And we hear a lot about earthquakes, but there's some people who try to mix up the, the data and depending on how you look at it, there are ways I understand. For example, if you say, how many earthquakes that are seven or higher in the last 20 years, it looks pretty level. But basically, any other way you do it, there are more earthquakes today than there were in the past. And any honest person would say, yes, they are growing, they're more and they're stronger today than there were before. Just eliminate poverty. Why we've had so much time to eliminate poverty and we haven't been able to do it. What did Jesus say? He said, the poor you will always have with you. Jesus said that. So why do we, why do we think that the main goal of the church is to eliminate poverty? It wasn't Jesus' main goal. He wasn't worried about it. Because he knew that there always would be poverty until he comes back to put things in order. And he hasn't done that yet. So there will always be poverty. If you eliminate poverty on the earth, you have disproved the Bible. Because he said there will always be poverty. But they can't do it. You know, in Colombia, they've got an interesting way of trying to eliminate poverty. Anybody know how they, how they eliminate poverty in, in Colombia? At least how they used to do it back a few years ago when I had the chance to go there. You don't see anybody on the street begging. At least you didn't 10 years ago. They kill them. They simply kill them. You begging? Oh, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm fine. <laughs> because if you beg, they would kill them. Is that the right way to eliminate poverty? I don't think so. But man's tried all kinds of ideas to get rid of poverty. And they're always poor people. As long as there's sin and laziness... That's one reason there'll always be poverty. Okay? But there are other reasons also. There's sickness and so on. But there will always be poverty. Jesus said in Matthew 26, 11, the poor you will always have with you. And in Matthew 24, you know, just eliminate uh, sickness. But Jesus said there'll always be poverty, there'll always be famines, and things would continue to get worse. Those are just a few reasons to think of the reason that 
we should be getting ready for the Lord's coming and be confident that the word of God is true and that everything our Lord said is going to come to pass. We don't know when the day is going to be, but we do know that the day is approaching. Verse 28 of uh, Luke 21 says, And when these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads, for your redemption draws nigh. The portion that we're reading in Romans 13, verse 12 says, The night, or this current darkness, is far spent. Well, it's been at least 2,000 years of night, and it's far spent. The day when the sun arrives, when Jesus Christ comes back, and when when he takes us to be with him, is at hand. You've been sleeping good, and the alarm sounds, and you think, well, oh, it feels so good to be sleeping, and I don't want to get up out of bed, especially Sunday mornings. Who loves waking up on Sunday morning? Anybody here? Love waking up on Sunday morning? Those are the, the days of the best sleep, I think, when, on a Sunday morning. You just want to, don't want to go. Or if you have something really important to do at work. Those are the days you just want to stay in bed. Or it's raining outside, or cold, or whatever the case. There's so many times you're in bed sleeping, you don't want to get up. But the alarm rings and you know, I've got to get up. I, I have to do it. I don't want to, but I have to get up. Well, consider this, a little sounding of an alarm. You know, The Bible says it, and now I'm helping to sound that alarm. You know, The alarm's ringing, you're there sleeping, and you need to wake up. The, um, it says the night or the current darkness that we're in is far spent, and it's time for us to get up. He says, therefore, let us... Cast off the works of darkness. You get up out of bed, you throw off your pajamas, and you put on the clothes that you need to have on, and you get to work. In this case, uh, like 1 Thessalonians 5, 7 says, For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. Second Chronicles seven fourteen says, If my people, who are called by my name, would humble themselves and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways... I will hear from heaven, I'll forgive their sins and heal their land. He says, if my people would do this. When Paul speaks, he's saying that the church is who needs to wake up. He's not out there crying out to sinners on the street. He's not crying out to the unsaved. He's crying out to us and saying that we need to wake up. Just like in Second Chronicles, the God's people are the ones who need to put away our sins, put away what's not pleasing to God, and have a change of, of life and a change of heart. Sin might keep you awake physically all night, but um, it puts you to sleep spiritually. The more you yield yourself to sin, the more you do what's not pleasing to God, the more you're being wooed and lulled into sleep because of sin. You think, well, how much sin can I do and get away with it? That's the attitude of a lot of people. Instead of thinking in the, in the sense that Paul is bringing this to us, the urgency of the need to wake up, too many people are thinking, I just want to see how much I can sin, how much I can enjoy myself, how much pleasure I can have, and still be a Christian. You know, how, how far could I go and not lose my salvation? You're worried about your eternal security. Um, we, we teach that we're saved, and if you truly are saved, you're not going to lose your salvation. And we take refuge in that. My eternal security. I know that Christ has saved me, and I know that I'm never going to have to worry about going to hell. And what's the result of that? The result should be, What a wonderful Savior. He loves me in spite of me. How can I sin against Him? How can I live a life of wantonness and sin when somebody loves me that much? That should be the result. Unfortunately, there's some who say, well, if that's the case, I guess I can be a little lax, a little lazy, and I can do all the things that that I want to do without respect to him. 
I don't have to live a holy life. I can live how I want to live because he's going to save me anyway. Well, if you're living in sin, get this, there are people who, who think, I'm concerned that I want to make sure that I don't lose my salvation. And I want you to tell me, teach me, teach me more about how I can be sure that I'm not going to lose my salvation. Well, if you're living in sin, you don't need more security or more confidence about your salvation. If you're living in sin, that's not what you need. What do you need? If you're living in sin as a Christian, you need to stop sinning. You need to stop. You don't need more teaching on your eternal security. You need to stop sinning. Because God does not condone sin. And Paul, in the urgency of this moment, says, you need to wake up. Get out of it. And start living the life that you are called to live. 1 John 1.5 says, God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. Ephesians 5.8 says, You were sometimes darkness, but now are you light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. That's what you are. You're light in the Lord. You don't have to walk in sin. You don't have to do what's wrong. You don't have to keep on living your life, pushing God aside and saying, Just be patient with me a little longer and let me do this a little more. That's not the attitude of a Christian. Your attitude needs to be, this hung my Savior, hung my Lord on the cross, and I want to get rid of it. I want to get as far away from it as possible. Don't walk on that thin line saying, I want to be a Christian and, and kind of do all these other things also. Go all the way with Christ and make Him your love, your, your focus, the heart of your soul. He says, and let us put on the armor of light at the end of verse 12. It's interesting. He says, cast off the works of darkness at the beginning of that verse. And then he says, put on the armor of light. It would seem more natural, more logical to say, cast off the works of darkness and put on the works of light. But he doesn't say the works of light. He says the armor of light. Why the armor of light? Well, in 1 John 1, 7, John says, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. He says, walk in the light, and there are these results. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses you from sin. You have fellowship with one. Everything goes great if you walk in the light. You say, well, I want to do that, but how? How, how can I do this? I'm, my, that's my problem. I keep on sinning, and I want to walk in the light, but how do I do it? It's paradoxical, because the fact, or, or what best helps you to, to live a righteous life, is to live a righteous life. It sounds like a paradox. And it's not a play with words either. It's the truth. Walking in the light is the best defense against sin. Walking in the light is the best defense against the enemy. Listen, in the same way that Proverbs 2, 10 to 16 says that wisdom and discretion and knowledge and understanding will keep you from the evil man and from the, the sinful woman, the same way it says, if you have wisdom and knowledge and discretion, it's going to keep you from these evil things. Well, in the same way, walking in the light or doing right becomes an armor that protects you from sin and protects you from being in situations that pull you into more sin. At some point, you need to say, well, I've been going down and down and I'm, I'm going farther and farther away from the Lord and my prayer life and, and my devotional life, oh, I'm just suffering so much. I've got a bad attitude and all this. At some point you need to stop and say, Lord, just help me to do something right. Just help me. Strengthen me to, to live the life of Christ. And when you cry out to Him and you ask Him, God, I need your help. I'm lost. I don't know how to do this. Well, that's the point He's been trying to bring you to the whole time. 
Because you're thinking, I can't do this because I'm not good enough. That's exactly the point. You're not good enough. None of us, not one of us is good enough. He wants you to come to the to desperation when you say, I'm trying and I'm trying and I can't do it. He says, okay, now you're like a drowning person in the ocean. You wait for that person to not have any energy and then you can save that person. The same way with us. He, he wants us to come to the position of desperation when we cry out to him and we say, Lord, I just can't do it. I need you to do it in me. And then... You don't just sit back and relax. Then you step. Then you start doing the things that you know you're supposed to do. Saying, I don't know how to do this, but I'm asking you to help me. And you start, you just start by faith, walking in the light. And that's when things start to get better. You've got to take the first steps yourself. You can't wait for him to do it all for you. You cry out to him and you ask him for help. And then you walk. It's God's way. Of, of, of Christ living in us when we crowd to Him and we trust Him. Every time you choose to sin, every time you decide, should I sin? Should I do right? Should I sin? And you choose sin where you're making it harder for yourself because you're starting the pattern and you're leaving your trust in God and you're opening the door for more temptation and more sin. But when you stop and say, I don't know how to do this, but I'm going to trust you, and I want you to help me, and you take a step in the right direction. You'll be amazed. You think, he can't do it, I can't stop. But take the step in the right direction and watch what God does. He'll help you for that moment, and then you do it again, and he helps you again, and you do it again, and he helps you again. The same way that sin leads to sin leads to sin, righteousness leads to righteousness leads to to righteousness. He says, let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting or drinking in sex parties and drunkenness, not in chambering, which is sexual promiscuity, and wantonness, which is sensuality and shamelessness, which is so prevalent today, not in strife or fighting, which is basically caused by your ego, and envying, or jealousy. Let's not be that way as Christians. That's not what he saved us for. What should we do? Verse 14. But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. Well, in verse 12 he said, put on the armor of light. Verse 14 he says, put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 12, the idea was, start doing righteous works and that will become your armor, your protection. Right here he says, put on Jesus Christ, which is telling you how to live the righteous life. How can you live a righteous life? Well, you put on Jesus. How do you put on Jesus? You look at him first. First you look at him. It says in um, 2 Corinthians 3.18, But we are with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image. How do you become changed into the image of Christ? By beholding His glory. By looking at Him in this glass or in this mirror of the Word, you look at Jesus Christ and you see Him and say, well, that doesn't look like me. I'm looking at Christ and it doesn't look like me. It's the mirror. <laughs> and you say, well, I need to become like that. You say, well, I want to put that on. Why do you have to put it on? Because it's not you. If it were you, you wouldn't have to put it on. If you were naturally this way, you wouldn't have to put any of this on. It would just naturally flow out of you. But because it's not us, and we're so far from being like him, we have to look at him, realize that it's not me, and say, I want to be that. Help me, Lord, to be this. This is what I want. Yes, oh, I, I lie. I want to tell the truth. Oh, I'm, I'm selfish. I want to be selfless. Oh, I'm faithless. I want to have the faith that God commands me to have. I'm not knowledgeable. Oh, I want the knowledge of Christ. And you, you put it on. As you read it, you say, Lord, give me this. Make me like Christ. Because I'm not this. I'm not any of this. And you put him on. And that's how you begin to walk in the light. And don't make provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. That's basically, just don't, 
Don't leave things around that you know are going to become a temptation to you later on. If you're trying to quit smoking, well, don't leave, don't leave cigarettes around. If you're having trouble with porn, then uh, don't make it easy to access it. If you're having trouble with eating, well, then don't fill your refrigerator up with cakes and with uh, all kinds of things that are in chocolates that you love so much. Okay? Be practical about it. Every little step you take to help yourself out in these is going to help. And Jesus says, or uh, Paul says, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that this is the time. It's urgent for us to take these steps in our lives. He's closer than we think. There's a world out there that needs us also. There are people that haven't given their lives to Christ that are going to perish if they don't come to Christ. And for some reason, God has decided that if we don't share the word, uh, he's not going to come down and do it. He wants us to do it. But we need to be in condition to do it. If we're locked up in some corner, worried about self-gratification, or moping because we're we're sad to be so rejected by the world. Oh, everybody hates me and I have to just stay in my corner and mope until Jesus comes and takes me to a better place. <laughs> well, if you're like that, you're not going to be of much good here on the earth either. Maybe it's better they just take you to a better place. <laughs> but wouldn't it be much better if we would just give ourselves completely to Him and be useful to Him, recognizing that I'm nothing, I can't do it on my own, but Christ in me, who is the hope of glory, can do it. I can do all things to Christ who strengthens me. And if we trust Him, believe in Him, take that step of faith to live a righteous life, leaving behind the old sinful ways, and every time I stumble, get up and walk again. Don't you think we can make a little progress in reaching the world? Well, let's live as the new creation that God has called us to be because the time is short. We don't know when he's coming, but we do know that there's less time today than there was yesterday. Father, thank you for your word this morning and for the kind attention of your people. We know, Lord, that we fail you so often and that we break your heart. And we're sorry about that. But we also know that you've given your Holy Spirit to live in us and to lead us to walk in righteousness. And there's a sense of urgency in the passage that we're reading that moves us to say, enough, Lord. I don't want to go on living this egotistical, selfless, self, selfish and God-dishonoring life but I want to live a pure life, a holy life, one that's useful to you, one that can be used to bring sinners to your feet, and that they might be saved and escape the wrath to come. I pray you'll bless this congregation and bless us all to realize the time that we're living in and the great need of us to wake up and live for Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.